Remember, God is holy. What does it say in, in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1? Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. It's your reasonable service. God, I just want to remind us all, and I'm reminding myself, God impressed me this morning as we were worshiping. God has made us holy. Can you say amen? Hallelujah. With his holiness, not our own. Glory to God. What a wonderful God we serve. So let's begin in chapter 7, verse 53. It says these words, they went each to his own house, first of all. Then verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So <laughs> why is this in the Bible? Why is it so significant that everyone went to their own house? Because if you remember last week, they were having a big debate. Well, this Jesus character, the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities got together. These are the, the doctors of the law. They're, they're upset because Jesus, he doesn't have a degree. He didn't go to college. He, how can he have all this knowledge? Uh, because they don't know who he really is, of course. And uh, Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to Jesus secretly by night, he says, you know, he interjects, he says, you know, does our law, and, and this is just a general question, does our law condemn a man without giving him a hearing or, or fair trial? Or do we just, you know, condemn him even though he's not here on trial? We're putting him on trial without him being here. And it's a reasonable request because that's what they're supposed to do. In the law of Moses, it says they had to have two or more witnesses come and testify. And then the person who's being accused of wrongdoing has to be given an opportunity to defend themselves. And so Nicodemus brings this up. He says, hey guys, um, you know, we have some rules. And they look at him and they, they get mad at him and they, they, uh, <laughs> they say, what, are you from Galilee too? Are you? They insult him, one of their own members. And uh, they also say, you know, look and see, no prophet has ever come out of Galilee. But that's not true. Uh, let's see, it was Jonah and uh, Elijah came out of Galilee. Did you know that? So these guys are so bent in their minds against Jesus that they can't even acknowledge the truth. So <laughs> they're having a big debate, and instead of continuing the debate, they all everyone goes to their own house. Now, if you know anything about anything, <laughs> these guys probably would have loved you know, to walk together and talk and say, hey, you know, this, that, and the other thing, and continue the discussion. But it says that they went to their own houses. Not only was the debate over because they had no answer for Nicodemus, but they go to their own house. The feast was also over. And so everyone goes home. But Jesus, instead of hanging around town, he didn't get a hotel room in Jerusalem, he goes over to the Mount of Olives, and he camps out overnight. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This is a, a place where Jesus has often gone and often goes to during his ministry. After the debate, they go to their own houses. It's unreasonable for these people to be so upset with Jesus. 
Then in verse 2 it says, Early in the morning, Jesus came to the, again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. He didn't stand up, and I'm not going to sit down and preach, but Jesus sat down. And the reason he sat down, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that this is an uh, expression or a, a symbol of authority when the teacher sits down. Matthew Henry says, notice that Jesus is diligent. The previous day he was in the temple teaching. And the next day he comes early in the morning. And he sat down and taught them having authority. <laughs> Matthew Henry also writes and comments, he says, even though the rulers were upset with Jesus, all the people came. And guess who else probably came with them is some of the rulers. The, the rulers were displeased with these people because back in chapter 7, verse 49, in the big debate, they say, this crowd doesn't know the law and they're cursed. What a pronunciation by the ministers. These people are supposed, the, the, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they're supposed to be the shepherds of the flock. And all they can say is the people are cursed. Well, it's their job, it's your job, Mr. Pharisee, to get the people to be uncursed. Amen? The same with the pastors. It's our job to guide the flock and to take care of the people of God, not pronounce judgment on them and say, okay, that's it, you're done. No, we're here to be a blessing. Praise God. Now, in verse 3, now this is a short passage, mind you, so this might be a short sermon. The very, they're, they're sitting there, Jesus is teaching, and these is the only time, you'll notice here, the only time in John's Gospel where the scribes are mentioned with the Pharisees. These are the guys who write the law. They copy it. They know the law by heart, I bet you. And the scribes and the Pharisees, this is an astounding, astounding episode. They bring a woman who's been caught in adultery. These guys should be minding their own business. Can you say amen? And they place her in the midst. They come in and they're going to try to embarrass the woman and Jesus. And they said to Jesus, teacher. Ha! Now they're calling him teacher. Previously, they, they're saying that Jesus is a nobody. He came from a podunk town, Galilee, and he doesn't know anything. But now, now he's teacher. What hypocrites. Amen? These guys are too much. In the King James, uh, it's, uh, they call him master. According to Strong's Dictionary, this literally means they're calling him like doctor. He's got a Ph.D. or a master or a teacher. It's not just that he's a teacher, but that he, they're, they're saying that he's equal to them. And by the way, they call a woman caught in adultery. I don't think you can commit adultery all by yourself. Where's the man? If they caught her, how did they catch her? Did they set her up? These guys are really bad guys to do such a thing. They caught her in the very act of adultery. You guys are really rude to do that. The nerve of these guys, as Pastor Jack Harris said, these caught her in the act of adultery. 
They put her in the midst, put her on display. Why would they do such a thing? Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. <laughs> what do you say? Moses actually commanded you to stone the man and the woman, not just the woman. What do you say? So there, they said this to test Jesus. They might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus, it doesn't say he stood up yet. He's sitting down. He's teaching. He bent down and started writing on the ground. Now, if he's in the temple, the ground is probably paved stones. I looked up this word ground, and it didn't really specify. It could be earth. It could be dirt. could be anything. But imagine this. <laughs> Jesus sitting there, and there's like a concrete floor, and he starts writing in the concrete floor. That would freak them out, I think. <laughs> Remember what happened to the king as he's drinking wine back in the book of Daniel and he sees a hand right on the stone wall? This could have been what was going on, but it doesn't really say that. In any event, they put her in the midst in the, of, for everyone to see. Now, remember the woman at the well in the Samaria. She had... Jesus says, um, you've had five husbands, and now you're living with a guy. And in those days, and in days today, it also is considered adultery. If you're living in sin, it's considered adultery. Plain and simple. Um, if you're married to somebody else, you're not supposed to be sleeping with somebody other than your spouse. Interesting that this woman, maybe she had a reputation. Maybe that's why they set her up. They didn't like this, and, and they're indignant that anything like this should happen. Well, their indignance, if that's such a word, or the indignity, whatever it is, that caused them to be so rude as to do such a thing, it, it, it wasn't righteous indignation. To them, I believe, they thought that this is the right thing to do. We caught this woman in the act of adultery, but it's flawed because... They didn't bring the man either. They're supposed to know the law. The law. This is a serious violation. In Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, both the man and the woman are to be put to death. In Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 22, both of them shall die. In verse 24 it says, stone them to death with stones. And by the way, in verse 25 it says, rapists are also supposed to be killed but just the man, not the woman who was the victim. Thank God for that. Those, can you imagine? Nowadays, if it's, uh, somebody gets raped, uh, now the baby gets the death penalty. What madness. By the way, according to the Jewish annotated New Testament, Roman law did not allow the death penalty for adultery. And no wonder the Romans had to invent new words for all the stuff that they were doing. <sighs> Jesus, sitting down, bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And the King James Version adds, as though he didn't hear them. He's ignoring them. And so they're standing, well, Jesus, what do you say? Come on, we need an answer. This is serious business. We're going to put this woman, we're going to kill her. Ooh, we're going to kill her. Get rid of the, uh, the sin in our midst. We know what to do. <laughs> Matthew Henry says that... Uh, we should be slow to speak when difficult cases 
are presented to us. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says that basically Jesus didn't want to give them an answer. Somebody posted on Facebook that the, there's no more gentlemen in the world anymore. Well, I disagree with that. There are gentlemen. Anybody know whatever was said when uh, <coughs> Queen Marie Antoinette was beheaded? said, when no one came to her, her rescue and aid, the age of chivalry had died. The age of reason had taken over, they said. In, uh, it was 1789, they called it the French Revolution. It took the continent by force, by storm, and it was a result of the age of enlightenment. All these enlightened people back in 1789 over there in uh, Europe, they believed that reason was supreme. And so they called it the age of region, reason, and it was the enlightenment. And the enlightenment and the age of reason produced the French Revolution and the reign of terror. Well, that's not very reasonable in my opinion. If you think you're so smart and it results in people getting beheaded all over the place, that's not reasonable. That's insanity. Amen? Praise God. Be careful. Be slow to speak when difficult cases are proposed to us. They tested him. They want to test him. So, in verses 7 and 8, they continue to ask him. They continue pestering him. They continue. To, he stood up, so Jesus stands up. And I'd like to think, you know, Jesus being the son of a carpenter, he probably was a carpenter too. He was probably a big guy because back then they didn't have power tools and stuff. He had to do everything by hand. And I, I would imagine that, you know, he probably intimidated them when he stood up. I hope he did. Amen. <laughs> and Jesus says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That's all he said. Okay, you guys, you want to do the deed? You think this is the right thing to do? Here's the right way to go about it. Whoever has no sin, you throw the first stone. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. This is the only mention of Jesus doing any writing. Wrote, wrote on the ground. No one knows what he wrote. But I hope to God that he started writing their names. And what they did. And when they did it. Because in the next verse it says, they heard this. Isn't it a good thing to hear Jesus? Amen. They heard it. They went away. One by one, they slunk away like, oh, man. They were embarrassed. I hope they were so embarrassed. And they slunk away, beginning with the older ones. Whoops, go back here. <laughs> beginning with the older ones. They heard, and it adds in uh, the King James, it adds being convicted by their own conscience. Conscience is a good thing to have. Can you say Amen. It's the faculty of memory. It leads to evaluations and judgments. The, uh, <laughs> the owner of a guilty conscience is relentlessly troubled by one. I was uh, doing some reading, and uh, apparently the idea of a conscience came through uh, the Greek philosophers. The uh, Pythagoreans... <clears throat> They formulated this idea that a conscience is a watchman given by God as a guide. 
Now, there's two different kinds of consciences. There's a guilty or a bad conscience, and then there's a good conscience. Hallelujah. Glory to God. If you have a guilty conscience or a bad conscience, you can go to God. And 1 John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says, If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. But, verse 21, Beloved, isn't it nice to know that we're beloved by God? Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Jesus doesn't answer them directly. He just tells them, whoever has no sin, you go and throw the first stone. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 6 and 7 says, first of all, two or three witnesses are supposed to come, and if the person is going to be condemned to death, guess who throws the first stones? Those two or three witnesses. So these guys, they caught the woman in the act of adultery, they're the witnesses. They never were those guys to do such a thing. And once again, it's like, man, you guys. And they didn't bring the man. That just gets me. Hallelujah. Notice, instead, their guilty consciences make them go away. What should their guilty consciences have done? What should any guilty conscience do? It should go to Jesus. Jesus, I'm guilty. Heal me. Save me. Set me free. That's what a guilty conscience should seek. Can you say amen? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. To save sinners. And of course, we all know, we should know anyway, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is included. No one is perfect. No one is sinless. But thank God, we can go to Jesus and get forgiven and have our lives changed. And this is what happens for this woman. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before Him. But the crowd was still around there. Amen? being convicted by their own consciences. And instead of going to Jesus and saying, what should we do? Remember Paul's uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost. They were cut to the heart and they said, men and brethren, what should we do? That's a good as a response as any to the Gospel. What should we do? How can we be saved? Like the Philippian jailer. What should I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus. You and your household will be saved. <clears throat> Hallelujah. By the way, the word conscience is only in the New Testament in the Bible. According to Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, there's only entries for the word conscience in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament. Avoiding a bad conscience is a worthy goal. It literally means to become aware of a conscience. Praise God. First Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter writes, and he commands basically, he says, have a good conscience so that when unbelievers defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. The purpose of our life is not for people to be ashamed, but the purpose of our lives is to point them to Jesus. Amen? 
Hallelujah. Paul is in front of the governor Felix in Acts chapter 24, verses 15 and 16. He's on trial because uh, he brought uh, supposedly a Gentile into the temple and that was illegal and they could put him to death for that. And so he appeals to Caesar and uh, the Roman centurion or the wherever he was, the Roman uh, military guy down in Jerusalem rescues Paul and they take him up to Governor Felix and his accusers come and they, they begin to excuse uh, uh, Paul of wrongdoing and Paul is given an opportunity to speak and he uh, addresses the Governor Felix and he doesn't butter him up like the other guys do and he says, I have hope in God. And he's talking about his accusers. They themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Isn't that a wonderful news? Amen. All the people that we love and know and have gone before us, we're going to see them again. There's going to be a resurrection from the dead. Hallelujah. Both of the just and the unjust. And in verse 16, he says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Amen? That's a good thing to strive for, a worthy goal to have a conscience that doesn't offend God or mankind, other people. 1 Timothy verses, chapter 1, verse 19, he, Paul the, writes and commands that we have faith and a good conscience. Why is faith coupled with a good conscience there? Because we put our trust in Jesus that what he did on the cross is more than enough to make us good enough to have a relationship with God so that we can have, if we do wrong, if we do stumble, if we do fall, we can go immediately to Jesus and ask forgiveness and have that good conscience. Verse 9, Jesus was left alone. Back one. Hey. Can you put it back to verse 9, please? <laughs> I can't get it. When they heard it, they went out one by one. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Notice, all of her accusers left. She could have said, right, I'm, they're gone. I'm out of here. She could have run, but she didn't. Interestingly, maybe she understood Jesus had the right to throw the first stone. Amen? Jesus had the right. He, that, he could have done that. But no, Jesus didn't do that. These people were trying to trap Jesus. Their motives were seen as more disgusting when they start slinking away. They tried to shame Jesus and Jesus turned the tables on them. One of the commentators, uh, he used a fencing term and he says, uh, when Jesus told them, you have got no sin, you throw the first stone. He used a fencing term. He said, Jesus delivered the home thrust. Go for the heart. Right to the juggler vein. Get these guys. And of course, Jesus being full of compassion, I'm sure he didn't mean this in a mean way. 
They were shamed by their own consciences. So the trial's over. Jesus stood up. The woman's there standing there by Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, this is the third time, if I remember correctly, in John's Gospel where Jesus addresses somebody with this term of tenderness, woman. At the uh, wedding in uh, Cana, when Jesus turned the water into wine, he called his, uh, told, spoke to his mom, called her, or addressed her as woman. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well. This is a woman who had a reputation, probably like the woman here. And he addresses her as woman with a voice and a, 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 a meaning of tenderness. Woman. Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? They were going to kill her. They were going to throw rocks at her till she was dead. They were going to kill her. These guys had, I don't know what you would call it, some might call it bloodlust. They wanted blood. They wanted to kill this woman. And Jesus says, well, they're gone. Huh. Where's your accusers? No one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. In the King James, she addresses him as sir. A, a term of respect. She speaks respectfully to Jesus. No one, Lord. She says nothing. Notice, she doesn't say, those jerks, they, they were going to kill me. She doesn't accuse or say anything bad about her accusers. They left. And all she could think of was, they're gone, and it's just me and you, Jesus. That's a good place to be when it's just you and Jesus. Amen? And Jesus, he says nothing about, she has received, in essence, personal salvation. Salvation is personal. Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. Jesus is big enough to be every single 8 billion people on the planet Earth now, supposedly. And Jesus is big enough to be every single one's personal Savior. Jesus' blood, hallelujah, has the power to save and to cleanse. Amen? For every single soul on the planet Earth. And now she's teachable. She calls him Lord, indicating that she wants to know what, how to proceed. It's like when we're building things and uh, we have uh, uh, our blueprints and uh, uh, one page says to put a column here and the next page says to put something else in the same spot. We have to send in a request for information from the architect. How shall we proceed? A lot of times I pray, God, how shall I proceed? How do I do this, God? How am I going to get this done? How am I going to get my house in order, God? How shall I proceed? What's the first thing I should do? And Jesus, he tells her, neither do I condemn you. What a wonderful Jesus we have. What a beautiful Savior we have. What a glorious, compassionate, loving, kind Father we have that God has made provision for sin for us. Amen? Can you say hallelujah? What a good thing to be able to say and stand before God and say, I am clean. Amen? Jesus says, 
Neither do I. He drops the case. That's it. He drops it, leaves it there. No more to deal with it. And he tells her, go. And one version, it says, go home. And from now on, sin no more. Does anybody remember Jesus saying this to somebody else? The reason they were so upset with Jesus is because he had healed a lame man who'd been lame in John chapter 5 for 38 years at the, the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus just tells him, pick up your bed and walk. And it's a Sabbath and he's carrying his bed. And they get so upset, they're going to probably try to stone that guy too. And all he says, well, somebody told me to pick up my bed and walk, and I've been laying there for 38 years, and I'd rather get up and walk. Can you say amen? I'd rather not lay there for 38 years. I'd rather not be lame. I'd rather be able to do something in the kingdom of God. And Jesus meets him in verse 14 and says, See, you're well. You're made whole. You're able to go and do and go wherever you want. You've got freedom. You've got liberty. You've got strength. You can do for yourself. Now, don't have to rely on others. And he tells the man, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Ha. Huh. Sin no more. John, 1 John chapter 3. John says a whole bunch of stuff about people that sin and people that are living for God. And it says, we do not keep on sinning. Whoever is born of God does not sin. What it literally means is that they don't practice that sin. They don't pursue sin anymore. They try to avoid it as much as they can. Praise God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says these words, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is of the world is passing away. Three main areas of sin is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's pretty basic and simple. When God, the Holy Spirit, reveals to you and I stuff that we shouldn't be doing, we can leave it, we can go. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says that no temptation has taken you except that which is common to human beings. But, God is faithful and will, with the temptation, make a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, he says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, our defense lawyer. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says, how much more? In verse 13, he talks about the blood of bulls and goats, the sacrificial rituals that the Jewish people would do every year. Once a year, they'd have the Day of Atonement. And Jesus said, you know, all that's well and good, but how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot or blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In verse, <clears throat> chapter 10, verse 19, he begins, he says, Therefore, since we have a high priest who has gone into the holy place, verse 30, 22, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, trusting and hoping in Jesus. Like I said, that what he did is more than enough. Hallelujah. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The yearly rituals that the people were doing, there was no complete release from consciousness of sin. Some minister said that the reason, one of the reasons Jesus got upset with the sellers uh, in the temple who are the money changers and the sellers is because the temple was supposed to be a place to go meet God. And even though you did need sacrifices, those things should have been sold in there. They should have been outside so that you can come in and have the consciousness of sin removed. Because when you came in and you saw these things, the immediate thing that comes to mind is that, oh, you're conscious of sin. I've got to get, got to buy this and got to do this. And thank God that Jesus did it all for us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18. Towards the end of the, the letter to the Hebrews, the writer writes and says, We are sure that we have a clear conscience. And how do we know this? Because we desire to act honorably in all things. That's our goal. That's what we strive for is to act honorably in all things is to honor Jesus. Psalm 119 verse 11, it says these words, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise God. God is good. And the woman went home and I believe she sinned no more. I hope that some good man married her. Well, by the way, um, if you're politically inclined, uh, write to your son senators and congresspeople and tell them not to pass the Marriage Equality Act. What the act is going to put, do if it goes into law is make homosexual marriage the same as holy matrimony. And there's a reason why it's called holy matrimony. Amen? It's because it's God-ordained from the beginning God created the male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In uh, one of Paul's letters, I can't remember which one, he uh, says that all sexual sin, it, it's in a class by itself because every sin, the Bible, he writes, is outside of the body, but whoever commits sexual sin sins against his own body, and so there is no reason why a marriage should be recognized other than the God-ordained man and woman. Amen? What's the purpose of marriage? To create a family, to have children. God wants us to raise godly children. That's the purpose of marriage. It's not just to have fun. That's not its purpose. And it's an affront to God. So you can write your congressperson and tell them, please support the Defense of Marriage Act between a man and a woman and do not support the Marriage Equality Act between uh, consenting adults or whatever. Because next thing you know, there's an individual I saw <laughs> on the Internet, some country over in Europe, this man is in a wheelchair. He identifies as a woman, physically fit, 
Now he identifies as a disabled woman because he's sitting in a wheelchair. People are deceived. Amen? Because they want to believe a lie. But the truth sets men free. And the truth is that God is madly in love with every soul on the planet Earth. So much so that at Christmas time when we celebrate, God's Christmas tree is called the cross. God gave the gift of salvation to mankind. And I believe that uh, it's our duty to try and get people to understand the value of that gift.